The Bob Murphy Show, episode 213. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i am going to be giving you a quick introduction or let's say commercial for, put it that way, of Mark Spitznagel's new book called Safe Haven, Investing for Financial Storms. So I was a consultant on this manuscript for Mark's book. I also was a consultant for his earlier book called The Dow of Capital, Dow being D-A-O. Just to give a little bit of the background, well, you know what, folks? Hang on a second. Before I dive into the analysis, I wanted to mention two other quick things. First, my interview with Jordan Peterson finally dropped. We had conducted the interview back in May, but I think he must have done like a bunch of interviews back in May and then, you know, they release them once a week. So many of you were hounding me saying, when is this interview coming out? And I said, be patient, be patient. And now it's finally here. So I'll link to that in the show notes page. It was a two and a half hour discussion, largely about the work of Mises. So uh, Ostensibly, the interview was centered around my book choice, but you know, as you can imagine, that quickly transformed into just a broad-based discussion on Austrian economics and the work of Mises in particular. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 213. I'll give you all the links, of course. So check that out, my two-and-a-half-hour discussion about the work of Mises with Jordan Peterson on his show. And then another thing that's very funny is... My colleague, I won't say his name just because I didn't check with him and some people don't like you mentioning private emails. Imagine that. He emailed me and some others and saying, hey, look it, I found this website. So it's academicinfluence.com. If you want to check it out yourself, and of course, I'll put the link to the show notes page as well. And uh, it's list of the most influential people in economics for the years 1990 through 2020. All right, so in that 30-year span, who are the most influential people in economics? And so I'm going to go ahead and read to you the top portion of this list, and you'll see why I'm doing so in a moment. Okay, number one, Paul Krugman. Number two on the list, Milton Friedman. Again, folks, what am I reading from? The website is academicinfluence.com, and they come up with the way, which we'll talk about in a minute, of how to rank academics according to their influence, hence the name. And so this particular category that my other colleague found and then alerted me to is a list of the most influential people in economics for the years 1990 through 2020. So number one is Paul Krugman. Number two is Milton Friedman. Number three is Joe Stiglitz. Number four is Daniel Kahneman. Some of you might not be as familiar with him, but yeah, he's, he's a real big name working on the intersection of... Um, well, let's just say psychology and economic theory. Number five is Amartya Sen. Number six is Paul Samuelson. Number seven is Ben Bernanke. Number eight is Kenneth Arrow. Number nine is Gary Becker. Number 10 is Ronald Coase. Okay, for these names, 
just about all these guys are Nobel laureates. Ben Bernanke isn't, but he obviously is also very influential. Okay, so all these guys, just about all of them Nobel laureates. Let's see, I'll skip ahead. Number 12 is Robert Solo. Again, huge name in economics. There's the Solo model is named after him. In case you didn't know who the Solo model was named after, it was named after Solo. What would you folks do without me? Number 13, Richard Thaler. Again, a big name. Number 14, Thomas Piketty, right? Number 15, Jeffrey Sachs. Look at these names. All right. 16, George Akerlof. 17, Greg Mankiw. 18, Lawrence Summers. All right. So I'm now getting into names that some of you might not be familiar with, although I'm sure you've all heard of Thomas Piketty, right? Now you might say, hang on, Bobby, you, you skipped one. You know, we'll go back and, you know, who was that? Was that Thomas Sowell or something like it? No, the, the one I skipped, number 11, is Robert P. Murphy. <laughs> so at first, I thought this was like some kind of joke, you know, that my colleague had somehow rigged it. But the guy who sent it to me, that's not his personality. Like he wouldn't have done something like that. And so then I was like, okay. And then I thought, well, maybe it's like, you know how you, if you do a Google search, the results are tailored to your browsing history and whatever. And at this point, because Google listens to what you say in, in your house, it's spying on you, right? So that's what I, I thought somehow, like the most influential economist in terms of my browsing history, I'm number 11 or something like, but no, this is legit. This is the actual ranking. So then just to say how this story has kept getting funnier to me, I go to my private MeWe group. And if you want to get into that, folks, for the Bob Murphy Show, you just got to make a contribution. You just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, and you can find out how to join the secret MeWe group. Oh, shoot. It's not a secret anymore. I just talked about it. But you can join the public MeWe group that you need to have paid to get into. So I go there to post this, and I said, hey, do you folks have any idea? Because I... I knew it had to do with AI. The people who make these rankings, it wasn't just they ask a committee or they ask some other humans, hey, why don't you tell us who your top 30 picks are and then we'll combine the lists. That's not what they did. They somehow trained the computer to go assess academic influence somehow. And then this is the list that the computer generated. And so then I thought, oh, so maybe the computer, like maybe it knows something. So, So there's one sense in which I realize I have no business being in this list with these heavyweights, right? Like what, what have I published? You know, that kind of thing. But then I thought, well, hang on though, because in my peer reviewed work, I do, for example, have a piece that critiques Paul Samuelson. And I thought, and you know, in my mind, I crushed him. That's why I wrote the piece. I didn't, I thought it was true. And so I thought, well, maybe the computers know that. And so like in their algorithm, just like, suppose I only played three chess matches in my life, but the people I beat all three times were all grandmasters. Well, then I might have a really high ranking, even though somebody could say, that guy's barely played any games at all professionally, right? So that's what I was wondering if like somehow the computers are saying, well, he didn't do too much, but every time he has dipped his toe in the water, he's crushed Piketty and Samuelson and Paul Krugman and da, da, da. And so maybe the machine thinks I am influential, or maybe it's like, you know, looking ahead three years and it sees something that the rest of you aren't able to detect. So that was kind of, I was half kidding, but I posted that in my secret MeWe group. And then there's a guy, Winston Ewart, I think I'm saying his last name correctly. I, I forgot to go look it up again. And you folks may remember him because he's been on the show. Let me just 
pull up the episode number. It's episode 111. So bobmurphyshow.com slash 111. I had Winston on. It was a fascinating discussion because he is a computer scientist who has co-authored articles with some of the heavyweights in the intelligent design movement. And so that's what we were talking about in episode 111 was Winston's own, you know, own solo papers primarily where he uses insights from computer science to shed light on what, you know, whether there's a signature of intelligence in the structure of biological organisms, things like that. Okay. So I knew Winston knew about programming and how, you know, computers work in AI, right? Because he works in intelligent design stuff as a computer programmer. So clearly he must know about artificial intelligence, right? And so I tagged him in the thread where I was just asking like, hey folks, this is kind of funny, but you know, is it that the machines are dumb or really onto something? And then just a brief aside, in the early days of AI, they would do things like when they were trying to get like uh, the, the computers to be able to recognize humans, they fed, they, they were trying to get the computer to learn the difference between men and women. All right. And I will omit any obvious trans jokes and stuff like that right now, even though I'm sure Matt Walsh types would say, oh, come on. All right. So they're trying to train the computers to understand the difference, to look at photographs and be able to tell the difference between men and women. And so what they did is, they just fed it a bunch of photos of men and said, these are all men. And then they fed the computer a bunch of photos of women and said, these are all women, hoping it would just learn, right? So that, that's how, in some of these designs, like with neural networks and whatever, that's how the machines learn is, it's not that the programmers set out to give a bunch of rules because the point is that you can't. Like you can't tell a machine, here's eight different rules to figure out the difference between men and women, like the, in terms of looking at them visually. That that's not that's not the way it works. You would you'd always come up with counter exceptions, or you'd realize you'd codified something incorrectly. So you just give examples and then see if the machine can figure it out itself. I'm obviously going through this very quickly. So what happened was after the initial training period, then they showed the machines different photos, and it was it got most of them right. But when it, they showed it photos of the Beatles, the machine thought they were women. And that's because it was photos from when they had really long hair. And so what the machine had actually learned was that short hairs are men and long hairs women. Uh, a different example to make the same point, they were trying to get the computer to be able to analyze satellite photos. Well, I guess they didn't use satellite. They could have been low, low flying or high flying aircraft too. To be able to detect enemy equipment, you know, like are there tanks or jeeps or something camouflaged hiding among the trees and so what they did is they got a bunch of training photos and so they went and they you know they hid their own stuff amidst the trees and then had a high flying plane or something take shots of it and then they all then they looked at similar landscape you know forest cover but without any equipment and took a bunch of photos there and so then during the training phase again you got to tell the computer what the right answer is so they fed it all the photos with hidden or camouflaged uh, equipment and stuff, mobile SAM sites and whatnot, and said, yeah, these ones all have the thing you're looking for. And then they fed it, you know, all the hundreds or whatever it was, photos where there was just forest and said, these do not have what you're looking for. And so then hope the machine would learn. And then they went to test it and the machine did terribly, Right, so they went out and took batches of new photos that the machine hadn't been trained on and then fed them in and said, you tell us, are there hidden 
you know, enemy weapons here. And the machine just did awful. And they were trying to figure out, well, why did it do so bad? And they realized what it was, is that it just so happened all the photos they took originally with the hidden equipment, it was a sunny day. And all the photos they took when it was just the forest, it was a cloudy day. And so what the machine had learned is, oh, if it's sunny, you tell them, yes, there's enemy equipment hiding in the trees. And if it's overcast, then you tell them, nope, no danger here. All right. So that's the kind of thing. And so I was wondering, you know, did the AI do something like that? Or is it really the fact that, no, I actually am the 11th most influential economist on planet Earth right now? So what's funny is I had, the way I phrased it is I said, Winston, can you check out this website? Do you know anything about how this AI works? And he wrote back and said, did you look at their about page? Yes, I do know something about it because I wrote it. And so I was like, what? And I went to the about page and lo and behold, yes, Winston Ewart is listed as, you know, one of the guys on the core development team for this website. So anyway, he was saying, even though it sounds like, oh, he rigged it. No, he, he was saying that they did design this the algorithm a certain way. And I do happen to rank highly on it. And one of the things, my chess analogy actually isn't that far off. He was just mentioning that, yeah, one of the things that contributes to it, to, you know, why is my ranking so high when you might not have guessed that, is um, that I'm often the go-to. Like, like if there's a Wikipedia entry on Paul Krugman and then someone wants to give the other side, like Krugman says such and such, but some critics point out blah, 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 that I'll be the person they'll cite and that that's true for a lot of articles apparently on Wikipedia and so therefore that helps my ranking. Like, oh, I must be influential if I'm the go-to person for these guys who are heavyweights. Like, what's the other side? So it's not that the AI evaluate and think that my work is better because obviously the AI doesn't think like that. But nonetheless, the fact that I'm the go-to critic for some of these guys who, you know, for their own rankings are in the top 10, then that bolsters my ranking. All right, so there you go. I am the 11th most influential economist on planet Earth. It's pretty amazing. So with those two housekeeping items out of the way, let's transition now to Mark's book. So what he's getting at, I, I toyed folks back and forth with how deeply do I want to get into this and what do I want to say about it? And let me put it this way. If you want to have a, a more philosophical, verbal description description of Mark's background. How did he get into investing? You know, what's his philosophy? The Tao of capital is better, right? In safe haven, this one is less about Mark personally and, you know, his approach to the financial markets. And it's more about investment analysis. And so this idea of a safe haven in, a, in the cover shows an umbrella. And it's, the idea is a certain investment or certain asset classes are often considered to be safe havens. And so they provide you uh, a place of refuge in case the rest of your portfolio gets crushed. All right. And so then the issue is what are these safe haven investments or asset types? Okay. So that's what the book is about. And this one is much more mathematical than the Dow of Capital was, just to warn you. And so rather than going through and giving a page by page summary, I think what I, the best thing I can do is just discuss two issues that are central to the book 
And then if that intrigues you, well, then go get the book. If it doesn't intrigue you, and in fact, if it bores you or you don't even know what I'm talking about, then this book's not for you, right? We'll do it that way. Again, folks, if you're interested, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 213 to see links for everything I'm talking about in this episode. Okay, so for Mark's book, let me just make two main points, but it'll take me time to flesh them out. So the first main point I'm going to do is contrast Mark's approach with the standard financial analysis that comes out of like the University of Chicago tradition, like uh, guys like Markowitz and Sharp, the Cap M model you may have heard of, right? So that tradition that comes out of Chicago, efficient markets, all that stuff, what Mark is doing is a direct counter to that entire approach, the entire enterprise. And it's not because Mark doesn't like math, right? So there's a lot of, there's like the Austrian school often battles with the Chicago school. And I've written stuff how like Eugene Fama is goofy when he's denying that bubbles can even exist, that kind of stuff. But there it's, it's sort of like, oh, and here's the limits of their mathematical formalism. Whereas what Mark is doing is, is something different. So yes, he does acknowledge the limits of their mathematical formalism, but he thinks that, no, if you're going to do it mathematically, here's the way you actually want to do it. And what you guys are doing is, is goofy. All right. So I'll talk about that. And then the other, then I'm going to do is, is get into a specific numerical example. That's mine. It's not Mark's, but it's, the same flavor of the kind of stuff he really analyzes in the book. So again, some of you, you're going to eat this stuff up and think it's amazing. Then go get Mark's book. Some of you are going to think, yeah, it's, it's not really doing anything for me. I don't know why you spent 10 minutes on that. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So the first item in the standard financial economics approach or mathematical finance, they model investors as preferring a higher expected return and preferring lower volatility. Okay. So of course you can get much more specific about that, but those two things are, are true. And so what ends up happening is if you've got your portfolio and then you want to add an asset, that's a safe haven in Spitzenegel's framework, you know, something that gives your portfolio overall less volatility well, then they're going to assume that that must lower the expected return on your portfolio, right? That there's got to be a trade-off, right? Because if there weren't, if there were some asset that was not only less risky, right? Like it didn't bounce around as much and over time you expected it to yield a higher return, well, then everybody would rush into that asset. Everybody would dump the assets that had a lower expected return and a higher volatility. Why would you hold those? And everyone would go into the asset that by stipulation had a higher return and a lower volatility. But then in so doing, what would happen? You would bid up the present price of that asset, thus lowering its expected return, right? Because if you think it's going to be worth a thousand next year and right now it's selling at 900, but then everyone wants to get into it and it pushes up the price to 980, well, now the expected return when it hits a thousand next year is much lower than it was before. Okay. And so that's in equilibrium, they would say it must be the case that every asset 
is owned by somebody and why would somebody main, retain ownership of some asset that had high volatility? Well, only if it had a high expected return. So maybe that's another way of getting at that result. If there's some asset that has a high volatility, nobody wants to hold it. Other things, they want to sell it for cash. And so since everyone's trying to sell the thing, it's a hot potato that pushes down its price until someone is willing to hold it because, oh yes, this thing has a high volatility, which I don't like, but it's also got a high expected rate of return, which I do like. And so that's why I'm willing to hold it. Okay, so that's the standard approach and there's a certain logic to it. It makes sense, right? Okay, that's why, for example, stocks have a higher expected return than bonds. It's certainly in, in models, you, know, you, you could say, is it true in the real world? But certainly in a theoretical model of the stock market or so let's say the financial markets, where there's stocks and bonds and stocks are more volatile than bonds are, it's got to be the case in these standard models that holding a stock gives you a higher expected return than holding bonds, right? Because there's got to be some benefit to offset the extra volatility to compensate you for the extra risk involved in holding that thing as opposed to a bond. And so that pushes down the stock price and it pushes up bond prices, which reduces their yield, right? Okay, so that's the standard approach. Spitznickel rejects that. He says, it's wrong to think that incorporating a safe haven asset into your portfolio lowers your long-run expected return, which is, which is you know, an implication of the standard approach. And there's different ways he says it. And here I'm not literally quoting him, so you know, he might not endorse exactly the way I do it, but that's certainly the spirit of what he's saying. Is that, look, as investors, we all want the same thing. In the long run, we want to have as much wealth as possible. That's what we're trying to do as investors. And so if you're telling me that, oh, by incorporating this safe haven asset into my portfolio, that's going to be a drag on growth. And so you expect me to be poorer 30 years from now than I would be if I didn't incorporate this asset. Well, then why would I do it? All right. So again, the standard response is to say, well, it's not just a matter of what do you expect to be richer or poor, but what's the volatility involves? You know, like you could, you could expect to be a little bit poorer, but no, you won't be much poorer. Whereas with the unhedged portfolio without the safe haven, yes, you expect to be wealthier, but there's a chance you could go broke, right? So there's, there's that kind of nuance and that's what they would say to Mark. But still, I'm saying Mark is making a valid point here that there's something a bit screwy with the standard approach that it leads you to think there's this trade-off between risk and reward and that, oh, if you want to be wealthier, you got to be willing to tolerate it disaster. Okay. So that's the idea. Now let me jump into a numerical example. Again, this is mine. Mark's got a really cool one in his book that I was so enamored with when I first read it that I was calling up <laughs> my brother and some other people, I think my son, and, and it was like giving them a little riddle based off the numbers of this thing because it was really pushing pushing me to think about things in different ways. So there's some interesting stuff here and I'm trying to th come up with something that's easy enough that if you're driving in your car, you can still get what I'm saying. You don't have to like pull out a sheet of paper and write this stuff down, but it still retains what's really counterintuitive in some of these examples that Mark gets into. All right, so without further ado, here we go. There's 
consider um, two different funds for you to put your money in. And in one of them, they say, oh, what, we, what has happened historically with us and what you, know, you can expect to happen if you come with us is that in any given year, there's a 50% chance that you'll have 100% gain and there's a 50% chance you'll have a 50% loss. Okay, so some years the thing goes up 100%, some years the thing goes down 50%. And you, you, you know, we're very confident, you can look at our track record, that that happens you know, 50% of the time one way, 50% of the time the other way. So you can put your money in that fund. Another fund says every year you gain 10%, guaranteed. So the question is, which fund do you want to put your money into? And what's interesting is this will sound like it's a math problem, and in a sense it is, but it's it's deeper than that. All right? And so one way you might approach that, and this is the way economists often do, is to say, okay, it depends on the risk tolerance of the investor. Somebody who's risk neutral, what do they do is they maximize the mathematical expectation of your portfolio under either investment. And they take what's called the arithmetic mean. And so if you're using the arithmetic mean, what does that mean? When you, it's, it's what you probably think of as taking the average of something. Is you add up all the individual elements and then you divide by the number of elements and that's the average amount, that's the mean. Okay, and so the arithmetic, or is the arithmetic mean. And so in this case, let's just assume there's four years. And so it goes up 100%, it goes down 50%, it goes up 100%, it goes down 50%. So if you add those up, what do you get? Plus 100, minus 50, plus 100, minus 50. It's up 100% cumulative over the four years. And then you divide by the four years, that's 25% on average, right? And so this fund could plausibly advertise and say, on average, our fund returns a positive 25% per year. Now, again, it's not that it's not consistent. It's not every year it's 25% up. Some years it goes up 100% and some years it goes down 50%. But on average, it goes up 25% a year. The other fund, in contrast, on average only goes up 10% per year. Right? That's pretty obvious. If it goes up 10% every year, no matter what, then the average works out of the same as well. Okay? If you wanted to do it, you'd say 10 plus 10 plus 10 plus 10 is up 40 divided by four years is up 10% per year. Okay? So that's how that works. So that's interesting. Now, another approach is to take the geometric mean. And this is a criterion that happens to line up mathematically with what's called the Kelly criterion for how you should, the optimal wager size you should use, things like this. And there's a lot of people who think that maximizing the geometric mean is the way to go, that you should... If you're faced with a choice among assets, you should pick the one that maximizes the geometric mean of your return. So, you know, your sequence of returns, not the arithmetic mean. So, that's, so the reason I'm picking these numbers is they're pretty easy to illustrate the distinction between the arithmetic and the geometric means. Okay, so again, or, or not again, so now what's the, what is the geometric mean? The first hedge fund or investment fund, the geometric mean, the way you did it is you multiply the numbers together and then you take the appropriate root. So if you had two numbers, 
instead of adding them up and dividing by two, which was the arithmetic mean with the geometric mean, said you multiply them together and then you take the square root. All right, and with four, you multiply the four numbers together and then you take the quadratic root, right, the fourth root, like you raise it to the one-fourth power, okay? So the first one, you could do it, you'd be like two times one, I'm, I'm doing the, the gross amounts, so that's easier. Two times one half, times two times one half, like that. And so you get to, that works out to what? It works out to one. You take one raised to the one-fourth power. That's one again. And so the net gain is 0% per year. The other investment goes up 10% per year. And so it's you know 1.1 times 1.1 times 1.1 times 1.1. Then you raise that to the one-fourth power. It pops out at 1.1. So 10% net gain per year. All right, so again, under the arithmetic mean approach, the first fund gives you 25% a year on average. The second fund gives you 10% a year on average, so clearly you'd want to invest in fund A. Under the geometric mean approach, the first fund gives you a 0% cumulative average growth rate on net, whereas the second fund gives you a 10% cumulative annualized growth rate. So you'd prefer... The second investment, if your criterion were to maximize the geometric mean, not the arithmetic mean. Okay, so this seems like, okay, great, Bob. You're just giving us some math. Why does this matter? What's the relevance? So the way in standard mathematical economics they would handle that is they would say, oh, yeah, see, the first fund actually will, on average, deliver you more money, will make you wealthier, but it's much, it's much riskier. And so people, again other things equal prefer a higher return but lower risk and so that's why we need to know the person's risk tolerance and that if you, if you imagine like a like so it's kind of the difference between like the insurance company and the insured if you're taking out fire insurance it's not that the company's either ripping you off or you're ripping the company off it's a win-win exchange and the way we model that as economists is to say that you as a homeowner you're very risk averse you would much rather like let's say you have a one in a hundred, or let's say a one in a thousand chance of your house burning down and your house is worth $200,000, you would much rather pay, the, you'd much rather suffer the $200 loss for sure in the form of a fire insurance premium than to take a gamble that there's a one in a thousand chance of you losing 200,000. But the fire insurance company has thousands of people like you on its books. And so it's not a gamble to the insurance company. It's not, it's not uncertain at all they can be quite certain in a given year that this is going to be what they're going to pay out in fire damages. And so if they're actually charging not $200 a year for you, but 250 or something, so they're charging you more than the actuarially fair premium, that's why they make money because they take in more in premiums than they pay out in claims in a given period. And they can be pretty sure that's going to happen. Whereas all the homeowners, again, they lock in the certain loss of the premium to remove the small probability of a catastrophic loss. And so that's why in utility terms, they're better off. In utility terms, the fire insurance company's off. So it's a win-win exchange. Everybody's, everybody's happier. And that's why fire insurance is a good thing socially in terms of standard economics, right? So that's how economists then would, that's the framework they would deploy to analyzing those two investment funds that I talked about. And they would say, yeah, if you were risk neutral, meaning you didn't care about volatility, that first one actually makes sense. And the way to motivate that is 
imagine you've got a billion dollars to invest. And the way you actually do it is you, you delegate and you pick a million of your agents and you give them each a suitcase with a thousand dollars in it. And then if they are randomly jumping in and out of that first investment fund, if you think about it, after a year or two, if they're doing that versus you have them jumping in and out with their suitcases of $1,000 each into that second fund, your agents collectively will have more dollars if you, if you send them off into the first fund than in the second one, or at least you would expect them to if you do, if you do the math, Right. And the way to see that is any given person shows up with a suitcase with $100 or $1,000 in it, there's a 50% chance it goes up by 100%. So there's a 50% chance of winning $1,000. And there's a 50% chance of losing 500, right? Because if it goes down 50%, then you lose half of it. There's 1,000 in there, so you lose 500. So just think about that. It's like if you toss a coin, and if it comes up heads, you get paid 1,000. If it comes up tails, you pay 500. That seems like a good gamble, doesn't it? That seems great. And so the idea is if you've got a million of your agents playing that over and over each year, you're going to end up racking up a lot of net winnings. Whereas if you send them over to the other thing, they're just going to win 10%. All right. So that's, that's, the, that's the way to see it. Why if you were um, an entity that had a boatload of money that you were going to divide up into a fixed dollar amounts and give them to a bunch of your agents who would then carry out your orders, you would want them wagering those individual suitcases of cash in the first one. And that's how you would maximize your expected winnings. But in contrast, so, so what's, how would you think about it? What, what kind of investor would you be if you preferred the second approach? Just think of it sequentially. If you're investing your money and then you take your whole portfolio and roll it over and put it in the fund again, and you just keep doing that time and again, you clearly are going to be better off going with the second one, right? Because the second one, what do you do? You, you earn 10% per year, guaranteed. So the longer you leave your portfolio in there, it grows exponentially, 10% per year. But that first one, let's just assume it alternates year after year. The first year it doubles, then you roll everything over in the second year and it gets cut in half. So you're right back to where you started. Then it maybe doubles again, up, and then it gets cut in half again. So you're just treading water. And so you're not going to get anywhere investing in that first fund because your winnings, you know, the more you make when you win, that's how much more you lose on the downside when you lose. And in fact, it exactly balances out. All right. And so the, the critical distinction might seem like, wait a minute, something's going how could it have been that the first scenario when you had like suitcases full of cash, it was a no-brainer that that first investment fund was better. But now if you're carrying the funds through time, the second one's better. It has to do with that critical element of rolling the proceeds over. The, in the first example, what I was assuming is everybody sits down at the table with $1,000 and that's what they're gambling with. And so that's why, oh, if you get the, you know, the heads comes up, then you get paid a, an extra thousand. And if it comes up tails, then you lose 500. That breaks down that, that analysis. If then when you say you win, then you go to the table again and now you have 2000 
to play with. And then if you win, you get paid another 2000. And if you lose, you lose a thousand. That's where that starts to break down. Cause you realize, Oh wait, it's not that you're always going to the table with the same thousand. If you, if you roll over the winnings. Okay. Whereas the, in the second one, that's, that's what we're explicitly doing. All right. So that's the distinction. That's why mathematically it works out like that. And that's why people say that maximizing the geometric mean is what investors want to do because you're that more closely mirrors what you're doing through time. So again, another way of just illustrating that is if you, in general, it's not just with these particular numbers that I picked for exaggerated effect. In general, if you have an investment fund that's advertising and saying, hey, come invest with us because over the last 20 years, our track record has returned an average annual return of 13.6% to our investors. If the way they calculated that number was to just look at the annual return for each of those years, add up all those numbers and then divide by the total number of years and, and report that as the average annual return, that's actually not the same thing as if you suppose somebody started out with $100 in year one and just kept rolling it over for the full time. And then you figured out, okay, what's the cumulative return? Now let me raise that to the one over number of years power. And then that's the average, you know, the, the cumulative average growth rate. You'll get different numbers. And typically you'll get a lower number on the second one. But as again, as an investor, that's what you care about. You're not jumping in and out of the fund with a fixed dollar amount. Instead, what you're doing is you're plopping how much you want to invest in this thing in there at the beginning and you're rolling it over. And now, by the way, too, if you want to get more sophisticated and say, well, maybe I would take some of my winnings, you know, profit taking and put it somewhere else and diversify. Okay, you can do that. But still, the idea is you got to do something with your money. And so as you become wealthier, your strategy needs to account for the fact that now you're carrying more wealth. All right, so that's the kind of thing Mark gets into in his safe haven book is the distinction between those two approaches and why he thinks the second approach is what you need to focus on. And so it's, you know, there's adages like if you want to get rich, avoid losses. Right. And that sounds like, well, duh, no kidding. But you'd be surprised at how much people ignore that in the financial sector, right? For there, they want to like maximize expected return and they don't take into account or they don't pay adequate attention to the fact that, yeah, if you have a bad year, that can really set you back. And so consistency is, is a lot more important than just being able to have some great years. All right, so that's the kind of thing Mark gets into. And it, it ties into all kinds of cool stuff with Daniel Bernoulli, expected utility, hypothesis, all kinds of stuff. But that's the essence of it. And... Again, he wants to say when you focus on what it is you're trying to do. So in the, in the standard paradigm, again, they would say, oh, if you're risk neutral, then you want the first investment. But if you're, if you're risk averse, then at some point, the second one, even though it has a lower expected return of only 10% a year, whereas the first one had 25% a year, eventually, you know, that's, that's better for you. And Mark wants to say, no, the second investment is clearly better. I don't care what your risk tolerances are the longer you leave your money tied up in that first fund, the more sure you are that you're going to be basically treading water. Whereas with the second fund, the longer you leave it in there, you know you're earning 10% a year. That thing's grown exponentially. All right. And, and so it doesn't make any sense to say a risk neutral person would want that first investment. And again, the, re the reason that quirk is happening is because you're rolling the funds over. 
Let me, uh, let me end with one last mathematical illustration of this because it blew my mind when I first encountered it. So it came in Kelly's original paper for Bell Labs. So he, he wasn't an investment. He was talking about like information theory and how you transmit signals over wires. That's working for Bell Labs. And he was just using an example to motivate the math and saying, oh, like suppose you had a wire that was going to a, a racetrack and they were giving you they were telling you which horse won before, and while you were still able to place bets, like at some distant location where they didn't realize you had a wire connected to the racetrack. But it, sometimes the signal gets cloudy, right? Sometimes it's distorted, so it's not foolproof. And so then Kelly was trying to calculate and say, what's the optimal, what fraction of your bankroll do you want to wager given that you have an, an edge, but not a perfect edge, right? So your, your chance of winning isn't 100%, but it's bigger than 50%. And so how much of your bankroll do you want to wager given that? And it turns out, like, let's say you just had a, a 60% edge. Let me do it this way. So suppose you're flipping a coin. If it comes up head, your money triples. If it comes up tails, you lose everything. And you're just going to keep playing that game. And the question is, each round, how much of your bankroll do you want to wager on that coin toss? And so what's interesting is you maximize the expectation of your winnings if you bet everything, if you just keep letting it ride, even if you're going to play it a million times in a row. Just you're, the strategy that says every round, if I'm still alive, just bet everything that it's going to come up heads again. And that ex-ante maximizes the mathematical expectation of your terminal wealth. And the reason is, in case you're like, what? That's impossible. The reason is because the chance of you getting another, another head, it keeps getting cut in half. But because your payout more than doubles each time, when you do the numbers and you say, okay, what's the probability of this outcome times my earnings in that scenario? And then you add them all up because that's what the mathematical expectation is. You know, like if there's 16 different outcomes, you say, okay, in this outcome, how much do I get paid? Then, you know, this outcome, this thing, you add it all up. So you, you know, do the first one divided by 16, the second one divided by 16, and you add them all up, and then that's the expected payoff. What ends up happening with this particular game that Kelly was analyzing is with each coin toss, there's only one scenario where you're still alive. You just keep getting a string of heads, and that keeps getting cut in half, right? So it's one half, one fourth, one eighth, one sixteenth, one thirty-two, one sixty-fourth, one twenty-eighth. You just keep going the more times you're willing to play this game, but for that one element where that string is still going, then the numerator just keeps getting huge and it more than offsets all the other zeros for every other possible path of coin tosses. And so that's why when you sit back and you analyze and you say, okay, for the thousandth coin toss, by the time I get to there, what's my expected terminal wealth? There's one term in there that's got a humongous numerator and then it's divided by whatever that number is going to be. And then all the others are zeros. And so still, that's a big number. So what's the problem with that, Kelly pointed out, is yes, letting it ride on each coin toss is the way to maximize the expectation of your terminal wealth. But it's also a correct thing to say mathematically that the longer you play that game, if you're letting it ride each time, the probability of you having zero dollars goes to one. Right, so the longer you play that, if you keep letting it ride, because once it comes up tails once, you're dead. They take all your money. That's how the game works. Remember, so you would think clearly that's not the right way to play. 
you know, it, you would think there must be something wrong with just saying, oh, pick the strategy that maximizes the expectation of your terminal wealth. Because by doing that, the probability of you ending up with $0 goes to one the longer you play. Okay. And the reason I'm saying that it might sound clunky to some of you is in this kind of math, there's a distinction between saying something will happen for sure and saying it happens with probability one. All right. So that kind of thing is partly what Mark is getting at in his book, even though the examples are different, is just to show it matters there. And, and yes, the way the economists would handle that would be to say, oh, if you're risk neutral, then do the first thing. But if you're risk averse, then you might not want to bet everything. And guys like Mark want to say, no, it has nothing to do with your risk tolerance. I don't care how much, you know, it's stupid to let everything ride because you're, the probability of you having any money goes to zero. Why would you do that? Right? So it's not that you're taking a gamble, but it's risky in his framework, right? He's saying, no, what you want to do is pick the strategy that maximizes your long run growth rate. Right. And, and there, it's, I'm speaking a little bit loosely because it's stuff like it maximizes the expectation of your average growth rate and things like that. And, you know, to get precise mathematically about what it is you're doing. But the point, as I hope that example illustrated, you can exaggerate these things to understand where the people are coming from who really like that criterion of maximize the geometric mean of the, of the re- sequence of returns. That it's not like... The economists say it's not that you need to know somebody's preferences. Just say, no, the only preference I need to know is do you want more money or not? And then do this strategy because in the long run, this is what gives you the most money at the end. And again, it, it has to, when you think through why that is and, what, and the other strategies that don't, it comes back to because the other strategies along the way, you hit a big loss and that sets you back. And so if you're carrying your wealth through time, and always having to invest it in something, then you know it's you can't just take your wealth off the table, as it were. You're still putting it somewhere. So that's kind of a Misesian point too. And so when you think like that and realize you have to carry stuff through and you got to be consistent, then you want to pick the strategy again that maximizes the geometric mean, not the arithmetic mean. All right. So I'll stop there. Again, the book is Mark Spitznagel, Safe Haven, Investing for Financial Storms. You can get links to that book and everything else I've talked about at bobmurphyshow.com slash 213. I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.